0: Americans really do not know one another, and they don't trust one another because they live in these different universes. Liberals do not understand conservatives, conservatives do not understand liberals, and the number of venues in which they actually talk are vanishingly small.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Charles Sykes talked with Americans of different viewpoints when he hosted the public radio show, Indivisible. The program, About the Nation in a Time of Change, aired over the first 100 days of the Trump administration. In today's show, Sykes talks about what he learned from his guests. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. When it comes to the environment, immigration, healthcare, and the news media, research shows our country is divided. But are these divisions as deep and hopeless as we think? The journalists in today's show have made careers out of asking questions and listening to American voices. What have they gleaned from their thousands of conversations and interactions with people across the U.S.? The discussion includes James Fallows, a national correspondent for The Atlantic, NPR's Melissa Block, host of WAMU's 1A, Joshua Johnson, and Charles Sykes. Sykes is a longtime conservative radio host and founder and editor of the website Right Wisconsin. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. Here's Joshua Johnson.
2: Hi, everybody. Thanks for deciding to spend part of your lunch hour with us. We are honored to be joined by James Fallows of The Atlantic, NPR's Melissa Block, conservative commentator Charlie Sykes, and by you, we are gonna talk about the dialogue in America right now. Our three guests have been working very hard on dialoguing with the country in various ways, especially now at a time when there's so much polarization and so much yelling and screaming. Hopefully what we can do in this conversation is get some insights from the three of them that you can take back to your communities, organizations, businesses, spheres of influence to help you deal with the difficult dialogues that you face. Let's start with you, James Fallows, and we'll work our way down the podium. Briefly, describe to us the work that you've been doing recently as it relates to the civic dialogue and then we'll chat in more detail about
3: what you've learned. Good, so for the past four years, my wife Deb, who's in the back there, and I have been traveling around the country, spent about half of the past four years in a little propeller airplane we have, which is now parked at the Rifle Colorado airport, that's how we got here from from Southern California, going to cities that had some kind of economic problem. Fresno, California, San Bernardino, California, Duluth, Minnesota, Allentown, PA, Greenville, South Carolina, Columbus, Mississippi, et cetera, asking people how they thought about their community's ability to respond economically, culturally, educationally, in terms of discourse and all the rest. And and we spent the last couple of months in California, in my hometown of Redlands, writing up a book about this, which will come out next year. The central message we've tried to get across is not that things are good in the US, because every problem we know of this gilded age exists, from extremes of wealth and poverty to the opioid disaster to all the other things we're well familiar with. But our main message has been that if you could somehow remove the part of your brain that was obsessed with national politics, you would find a much more constructive, practical-minded, future-oriented discourse. And I'll give us 15 seconds to give one way I finally thought of how to, how to explain this. We all know as Americans, or customers of the health care system, that American health care has big problems. And if you listen to national discourse in the last five years, you would have thought this was an, a, a realm of white hot disagreement. People were so furious about Obamacare they couldn't stand it. That's what our national discourse has, has said. If you look at the congressional negotiations in the past couple of months, you see people actually are not furious about this. Only a few of them want a radical change, and most of them think, yeah, this is better than the alternative for all, all of its, um, all its flaws. So essentially what we've seen on things ranging from educational adaptation to training people for new jobs to dealing with the environment to dealing with medical issues is that people recognize problems but feel as if the direction is positive rather than negative.
2: And James, I would like us to talk more about what you have found in your journeys in terms of how people on more of a ground level are dealing with these issues that's different from the way we hear about them in D.C. But first, let's hear from NPR's Melissa Block. Melissa, what have you been working on?
4: I have uh, been embarking on a project, not dissimilar from Jim's, but much smaller in scale, uh, for the last four or five months. Um, traveling around the country, visiting communities, large and small, mostly small, um, and exploring how how place shapes identity. I'm always really interested in how where you're from shapes how you view the world, and what the local issues are that most motivate people. So we've been to, um, the heartland to Independence, Kansas, Missouri, and Iowa, which turned out to be a far longer trip than I realized. We've been to the Mississippi Delta, um, to the Arizona-Mexico border, to Hamtramck, Michigan, and then I just got back from spending two weeks in southeast Alaska in the the panhandle, which is that part down there, um, which was incredible. And in all those places, exploring either profiling people who are leaders in their community or in engaged in, in work that interests me or people who have a story to tell. Um, and I think you know, one of the through lines has been that people are much more complicated than we might otherwise believe and that people cross all sorts of boundaries in their daily life. And those are some of the stories that I've been exploring. The series is called Our Land. It's all on npr.org. And it's, uh, it'll be continuing in the fall. I'm
2: sorry, James, I forgot to ask you. What form is your work going to take? Is it articles in it's the Atlantic?
3: Atlantic or? So my, uh, our work has taken the form of a couple, I did a cover story last year in the Atlantic and several other episodic pieces. Deb has done stories in the Atlantic. We've done probably five or six hundred web posts, a number of uh, broadcasts with uh, web Atlantic Video Team, Marketplace Radio, and next year there will be a book, Working Title TK, but look in your bookstores next year for one by James and Deborah Fallows. Great gotcha. <laughs> Yes, Working Title
2: TK <laughs>
3: by James Fallows. Charlie Sykes, what have you been up to?
0: Well, I spent the last uh, 23 years doing call-in shows, uh, most of that for a conservative uh, talk show in Wisconsin, and more recently for uh, Indivisible from WNYC, talking with people across trying to talk with people across the political divide. Um, now, the last time uh, Joshua and I were on a panel, I, I think a- after I gave my take, he, he referred to me as the lord of darkness, <laughs> because, because my take is that um, everything bad that's happening is about to get worse. Um, all the trends in the lack of civility are going to get worse, um, the divisions that we have in the country. But I, I guess I want to make three three kind of conclusions of, living between these two worlds, between Wisconsin and and, and New York. Number one, most Americans do not feel that they were being listened to, which was obviously true. They feel that they were ignored or that they were looked down upon. Uh, The second conclusion is that we really have become two nations, that most of the dialogue we're talking past one another, that we have become Um, geographically segregated ourselves and intellectually segregated ourselves into increasingly into ghettos. This is accelerating that we live in um, alternative reality silos and the intensity of political tribalism continues to tick up Uh, and I think this is one of the things that that you know uh, is reflected in the intensity of the debates and of the distrust of one another's Americans um, and I'm going I'm to give a modifying point in a moment, but Americans really do not know one another and they don't trust one another because they live in these different universes. You know, liberals do not understand conservatives, conservatives do not understand liberals, and the number of venues in which they actually talk are vanishingly small.
2: Let me uh,
0: yeah. jump in there and I want to work
2: yeah. my way back down yeah. the stage and then we'll, right. we'll open it up to your questions. I wonder, Charlie, since Indivisible, and I don't, right. di- how many of you are familiar with Indivisible or heard it on your station? Okay. For those of you who didn't, I, correct me if I'm characterizing this wrong, it was a program for just the first hundred days of right. the new administration, with basically a different host every day. Right. To try to, I was Wednesdays. Right. To try to tease out some of the, the topics that Americans are discussing. You mentioned that Americans on different political polls don't really know one another. What was your experience of hosting a program that was meant to bring them together? Did you find that people were open to that, willing to be part of that, or was it hard to kind of pull people out of those silos and into a
0: shared space? I have multiple answers, but the main ones. I think there's a tremendous hunger to have this conversation, particularly one that's not vicious. That when you actually have a respectful conversation, people go, "Okay, this really, really assures me that we actually have more shared values than, than, than we disagree on." Uh, I was also um, repeatedly struck by how unusual that effort was, how, how rare those, those discussions were, and, and so let me get a more positive point. So, you, you know, Americans don't feel they were listened to. They don't talk to one another that much, as much as they do. But also, um, our politics brings out the worst in us. Because Americans are fundamentally decent people. And I agree with what James said before. That really, that you take out the politics, and we have so much more in common. We are a fundamentally decent, caring, compassionate people. And and I I don't want to pick a fight with anybody. But um, there was a panelist here at one of the sessions last night who was, was saying that it, was, it is elitist to criticize Donald Trump's language and his conduct because, in fact, that reflects the way working class rural Americans talk and think. And I thought that itself was profoundly elitist. <laughs> because I know no one who talks like Donald Trump. Um, and I think this is something that we need to, to deal with. And, and I, I don't want to get too much into you know, the daily news cycle. But you know, we're, we're talking about what kind of an um, American we are. So Donald Trump takes to Twitter, and he mocks a woman's looks again. You know, if only we'd been warned about this. If only we'd been warned that we'd have a president who would lash out personally, would mock women's intelligence and, 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 and their looks. And so the question is, does that reflect the America we are? And this is the real paradox. Well, because, I, because most people, even people who voted for Donald Trump, would not allow their teenage ch- ch- uh, you know, kids to behave that way. But I am afraid that one of the things that we're up against in terms of the civility is, for better or worse, the President of the United States is a role model. He's the role model in chief. And that his effect on our culture and the civic culture of decency and respect will be as damaging and profound as its effect on politics and government. Well, maybe that's a good place to come
2: back to you, Melissa, and the points you were making in terms of your research, your reporting on NPR, and how complicated people are. I wonder if you learned anything from your reporting that might illuminate not only the complication, but also President Trump's appeal. I mean, he did win enough votes in enough places to become the president of the United States. Even though he didn't win the popular vote, he won enough electoral votes to to seal the deal. What did your reporting learn, what did your reporting teach you about the appeal of President Trump, even through however complicated we are as a nation?
4: Well, I mean, I should preface this by saying that originally, when I conceived of the series, I thought it would be much more along the lines of visiting communities and asking who they voted for and why. And I quickly decided that was really not interesting at all to me and that people were sick of hearing about it. Um, What about that
2: disinterested you ultimately?
4: Because I felt like it was asked and answered and not terribly nuanced. I felt like those questions get a certain kind of answer that really don't reveal very much at all. And that the kinds of stories I was interested in doing were, okay, let's talk about the hospital that closed. How did you feel about that? Well, if Medicaid had been expanded, would it have saved the hospital? What does it mean for your community? You can get, I think, far deeper into what people really think by going that way. That said, I I keep thinking about um, one of the most recent stories I did, which is from Haynes, Alaska. If anybody's ever been there, it's an unbelievably beautiful, idyllic spot. Can't imagine, maybe except for Aspen, Colorado, a more beautiful place to be from. And it is riven by political discord. It's tiny, it's like 2,000 people, split right down the middle in 2016. Hillary Clinton got 374 votes, Donald Trump got 370. So they were four votes apart. Um, and there is an active recall campaign to recall three members of the local borough assembly. And it's gotten pretty nasty, largely on social media, which I think is another component of what Charlie's talking about. People say things online that they probably wouldn't say face to face. So there is that element to it. At the same time, people have to live with each other. I mean, they go to the hardware store, they see each other at the post office. When the plane crashes there, as it did a month ago, I guarantee you that nobody was asking who they were supporting for president when they helped extricate the people from the wreckage. Um, Small towns have a way of bringing people together. And I think, you know, it also means that people, They, not to say that they don't have strong feelings about things, but it's not all that they care about. And as one woman there told me, she's actually the target of a recall, of the recall. Um, You know, she's quite liberal and and she has very good friends, lifelong friends who are Donald Trump supporters. She said, I'm not gonna lose a friendship over this. I mean, that's crazy. What does that tell our children? So I hang on to that. I mean, not discounting anything Charlie says about the level, because what the other thing they did say is that they do feel that the level of discussion has been amplified and gotten more vituperative because of what's going on.
0: I, I want the
3: optimism. I'm the of
0: Darkness. No, no, no I don't.
3: <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly agree more than I do with Melissa on saying that the least interesting question to pose to people in Alaska or Missouri or Mississippi or Wisconsin is how do you feel about Hillary Clinton? How do you feel about Donald Trump? because you know the range of answers to that, and it's part of what is a serious problem in our national level politics, which has become essentially religious slash tribal. You know, you have your views, you take in all, you know, are you Protestant or Catholic in Northern Ireland? Are you, which tribe are you from in the Middle East? Uh, Are you, when we lived in Japan, people who were ethnically Korean, you couldn't tell on site, maybe they're ethnically Korean, but once people knew they were ethnically Korean, all all bets were off. That's what national politics has become like, and that is a problem, and I think it's a different problem for what we're discussing here. But I'll just give just one or two quick examples of how that doesn't get in the way, if you don't ask people that, they don't volunteer it, because it's not the most interesting thing going on. One illustration, Dodge City, Kansas. I don't know if anybody has, has been here. We all know it from Gunsmoke. Tourists in Dodge City now are mainly German, because Gunsmoke is still run in Germany. And d- despite your image of, of, of Gunsmoke, it's, it's a majority Latino community now. Place where, because of, of, um, of the meatpack industry, essentially it has a slightly majority Latino population, school population overwhelmingly Latino, Latino, business leadership mainly Anglo. And in Kansas, where the school budget has been cutting back, the people of Dodge City, the mainly Anglo voters of Dodge City, have been passing big taxes and school levies to say we need to take care of these kids. These are our kids, we don't know if they're documented or not, but they are our kids in Dodge City. We need each other. The guy who's the finance manager for the city of Dodge City is here on a DACA waiver. Uh, Ernesto de la Rosa, and they're all saying, how can we keep Ernesto here? Because we love him. I'm
2: sorry, DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood arrivals. Yes,
3: this was, yes. One of Obama's things that he, w- he came from Mexico as a child, and so, th- th- so he's here. He has a you know, graduate degree. He's a much beloved uh, city manager. Um, similarly, in, 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 in Erie, Pennsylvania, we were there just a day after Donald Trump had a big rally at the Erie airport, where the mainly white crowd from the surrounding rural areas came in and said, yeah, 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 these refugees are such a menace to us, Erie actually has 10% of its population as refugees. And we saw some Syrian refugees the next day. And Erie, re- uh, d- like many other Rust Belt cities, recognizes that its demographic and entrepreneurial hope is refugees and immigrants. And so if you ask those people, do you like Trump, do you like Hillary, you'd get some big war and they'd punch each other. If you didn't ask them, they'd say, how are we going to have better schools? How are we going to change the school funding for Erie, et cetera.
1: You're listening to a bonus edition of Aspen Ideas To Go. Over the next two months, we're showcasing the interesting and relevant conversations we couldn't wait to share from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Find Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes, NPR One, and SiriusXM's Insight Channel, Channel 121. When you subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review, it helps others find the podcast. Now, back to the show.
2: James Fallows, let me ask you to pick up on part of what you were describing. Can you give me an example of part of the more solutions oriented dialogue that you encountered on your travels? Yes. Maybe one that could reflect
3: for the rest of the nation how we might want to be having these conversations going forward? Yes. So, city of San Bernardino, California, I don't know if any of you have been there. I grew up right across the border in Redlands, California. It's, it's the most troubled city in California, arguably one of the most troubled in the entire country. It has crime problems, civic government problems, You know, every problem you want San Bernardino has. And there has been, over the last three or four years, parallel efforts of youth groups, teenagers and people in their 20s, mainly Latinos and and blacks in San Bernardino, it's a heavily uh, non-white, white city, working with business leaders saying, we need to have some civic engagement to get young people involved in staying in school, turning out to vote, beautifying the parks, et cetera, et cetera. So they have said, what can we do in the texture of the town? Also, one of the richest men in, well, a very successful, very conservative, very religious entrepreneur in San Bernardino named Mike Gallo, who made his money as a defense contractor, decided that his mission in life at about age 50 was to save the school population of San Bernardino. So he ran for the school board he's now the chairman of the school board and is is having all these technical training programs so that people can get trained for what there's actually a very large market for in welders and logistics workers and robotics repair people and all these things the sort of twenty dollar an hour jobs that are much better than than you know minimum wage jobs so they have said how can we And and there was a, one good of the details, there was a deeply flawed constitution uh, unique in the country that San Bernardino had. And different age groups, different ethnic groups, different um, political, national politics groups all said, we have to get together and have the supermajority necessary to reform the city charter, which in last fall's election they did. So people of, of all different walks of life in California's hardest luck city are finding ways to move the city forward.
2: Before I get to your question, yeah. I just want to dig in a little deeper on your yeah. story. It sounds like this was the kind of thing that people said, oh, pressing problem, we have to solve this together. Was there a log jam? Was there a roadblock? It sounded, the way you described it, it sounded like everyone said, oh,
3: yeah, let's help these kids. What was the big hurdle that had to be overcome before that happened? It was uh, civic bankruptcy. So yeah. uh, Stockton, Detroit, and San Bernardino went into bankruptcy. Stockton and Detroit came out of bankruptcy. And San Bernardino has been for, uh, I guess, five or six years since the crash in bankruptcy. So they had to do something. The heart of their problem was their constitution required them to pay their police and firemen on a scale equivalent to Oceanside, uh, Palo Alto, Carlsbad. You know, the richest cities in California, San Bernardino's salaries were paid. And so they were structurally just bankrupt. And so they were forced... They were in receivership, and so they said we had to do something. The former mayor, Pat Morris, led an effort, and so that, that, was, the, that was the trigger.
2: They had to put a lot of political yes. differences aside right. to just exactly. do the, the economic piece. Yes. Let's dive in with questions. By the way, I forgot to mention, feel free to direct questions to any of the four of us. I have been preaching all week, so I understand if you're out of <laughs> questions for me, that's fine. i prefer if you send questions to the three of them, but if you have one for me, I'd be happy to answer.
4: Hi, I'm Susan. I'm from California. And just looking back on what happened with the last election, I think that really the polarization and vitriolic discourse that we've all seen and none of us like had a lot to do with the two candidates that we had. And so I'm wondering, do you think that there's any opportunity for the rise of a moderate third party when you're talking to America? The Lord of Darkness I have
0: to say. Yes. That <laughs> that <laughs> what say you, my I, Lord? I'm probably not going to shake that. Danny uh, said. You know that, that that is one of the most interesting questions because I do sense that there is this tremendous center right, center left sentiment out there. Unfortunately, in American politics, all of the gravitational pull is toward the extremes. If there was going to be a moderate third party, 2016 would have been the perfect moment for it. But there's two reasons that even I find a little bit of hope. Number one. Um, what happened in France just recently, where basically you had Macron, you know, came out out, out of nowhere. He blew up the entire party system, invented a a, a centrist party, which is now completely rewritten the rules. Secondly, maybe this would be one constructive thing millennials could do for us. Um, <laughs> that, that they that they have no. Um, uh, that, that, that they have no loyalty to the existing parties, and if the existing parties continue to be toxic, continue to discredit themselves, continue to be gridlocked, um, I can imagine you know, the right moment for somebody to say, okay, would you like to try something different and actually solve problems? By the way, I just want to comment, James Fallow's point about the, solving the problems is an incredibly important argument for local control, to say, look, Our federal government is dysfunctional. People who know one another will work with one another will solve problems. So for a lot of folks on both the right and the left, this is a great argument for why you have power perhaps devolved to the people, to lower units of government, to states, to be able to experiment with these things. Because I think people work with one another, whereas what you're going to see play out in Washington over the next couple of months, is a perfect indication of how we are now incapable of dealing with one another. James? Can I add a corollary? Oh, go ahead, to Melissa, and, and James.
4: Now I'm assuming the role of the, the Lady of Darkness. <laughs> um, in one thing that France does not have, yes. is super PACs, yeah. and does not have Citizens United, and does Great. not have billions of dollars arrayed against yeah. Canada. And they also have a very short election cycle. Um, so. And they're French. And they're
1: French.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah. James? So I think the barriers against a third party are very serious. There's a reason we haven't had a successful third party since Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans you know, more than a century and a half ago. But I think there's a lot of reason to hope for a different kind of political figure from our established uh, parties. We tend to elect, for the presidency, the opposite of the person who was just there. I once worked for Jimmy Carter, who was the opposite of Richard Nixon, <laughs> sort of similar to Gerald Ford. Obama was very really different from George W. Bush, etc. So I think in both parties, we're going to see a different moderate healing kind of person after this episode we're in now. I hope. Next question. Hi, sir. Hi, my name is Fred. I run a group called Project for Public Spaces. We've been working with the National Main Street uh, Center, working with all of the, the, the towns and communities they serve. There are 1,500 of them. And we've been doing that over the last three years. And every community you go into, if you focus on place, which is what everyone desperately wants, more of a sense of place, no one ever talks about, never has talked about it. And in fact, there's a very liberal mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, who is going to run on a placemaking platform for the governorship. He can't win as a liberal or a Democrat. He can beat the the current governor because he has a broad base going into neighborhoods and communities and small towns he can appeal to their de- desires to have that place that's a great platform maybe melissa thank you for that
2: yeah. Paul comment Fog- melissa maybe all yeah.
0: yeah
2: yeah right. maybe melissa you're the one who could chime in on this since a lot of your work had yeah. to do with with the sense of place how does that right. factor into well, the way I we think, talk about this i
4: issues? mean the key component there would have to be and what i saw in a number of small towns that i was in was an aging population. I mean what what convinces young people to stay where they are? How do you stop the brain drain? And sense of place can take all sorts of shapes and forms, right? And and accompanying that needs to be economic growth. They need to have a reason to stay. They need to know that there's a job there that is what they want to do. And I saw it so many times in places that used to be vital, really interesting places, Mound Bayou, Mississippi, which was founded by slave former slaves. Um, Road bypasses it, jobs went away, and it's a shell of what it used to be. So to build that place back up obviously needs an economic engine that goes beyond just sense of place. It means investment.
2: Could I, both you, Melissa, and you, Charlie, have mentioned generations and younger people. Mm -hmm. How much do you think that this better civic dialogue is going to hinge on the next generation? You mentioned the French election with Emmanuel Macron, who is this relatively new upstart between two Mm Fairly well-known players, Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the left, and, Jean- and Marine Le Pen on the right, but he's the new guy. Right. Is this? partly generational is that part of what we need to factor into the future of our civic dialogue I, w- I
0: would hope so I mean I would hope that's the way it would go and I hope that James is right by the way that uh, in our political cycle we 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 basically say okay we tried this let's try something fundamentally different so in 2020 maybe the American people yeah. will will vote for civility will vote for decency and character and all of those things um I'm I'm just afraid that things are been coarsened but I'm but I'm guessing that that younger people are watching everything that's happening and with, with a sense of disillusionment and disgust, let's keep going with questions.
3: I wonder. Uh, speaking of this division that is politically around the, among the people of this country, what is the role of Fox News in uh, fueling this uh, whole fire? Thank you. What do we think about Fox News,
2: <sighs> um, James?
3: I wrote a book 20 years ago called Breaking the News about the way that sort of the the, the news media were giving us a less and less realistic and practical and moderate view of, of, uh, of reality. And that was just before Fox News went on the air. So it, it is. I, th- I think that Fox News has, has played a profound role uh, in, in our politics. I think that when the history of this era is written, a lot of attention will be given both to Roger Ailes and Mitch McConnell, I think those are two people who've done a tremendous amount to get leverage for conservative forces, but also at the cost of, of civic discourse. So I, I think, and that's connected to what I was saying earlier, that the what I see as the tribalism and the fearfulness and the extremes of American public life almost all involves things people don't know about firsthand but are getting through their various media uh, me- media, uh you know sources and Walter Lippmann wrote about this 100 plus years ago talking about the pictures in our mind determining what we can see and the pictures in our mind to become very stereotyped and extreme and i think that fox has a large role it in that. seems also that you know fox news to t- to critics of fox
2: news has maybe poisoned the well in a way in terms of we have con- the w- in terms of the way we have conversations between left and right. I mean we have very reasonable conversations on 1A with people on the left and right and everyone shakes hands and smiles and hugs and walks away fine. And maybe the impact of institutions like Fox News makes it harder for some conservatives to uncouple themselves from that narrative and just have a
0: straight ahead respectful conversation. Well, Charlie? Well, I Two things. Number one, don't overestimate the impact of Fox News. Don't underestimate it. I mean, w- interesting when you think about the things that Donald Trump and Roger Ailes had in common um, over the last, you know, in, 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 their, in their attitudes. Um, that, yeah. that will make a great uh, chapter in, 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 yeah. in history. Um, but my book is How the Right Lost Its Mind. And, um, you know, Fox News is part of it, but it's only part of it. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, in, A few years ago, there was a great book called uh, The Echo Chamber about what Fox News had had created. But in the last several years, that echo chamber has become these alternative reality silos. And it is not just Fox News. It is talk radio. But it's also this explosion online. Um, And I'm not sure that people have fully grasped how, in fact, there are these alternative realities out there, whether it's Breitbart or Infowars, um, where you can wake up in the morning if you're a conservative and have live in a completely different universe of facts than everyone else. And this is one of the reasons why, and this is my, my, the darkness thing, I actually believe that if, um, if Richard Nixon had had this kind of a media ecosystem. He would have survived Watergate, Mm -hmm. because you have 40% of the population who lives in this world of which Fox is part of, it's an an important part, but it's only one part, where they have been immunized from any of this information. We can have the greatest journalism in America, and we are seeing some great journalism in America, but you have 40% of the public who um, has been programmed to reject it, to discount it, to ignore it. They will never see it. And so when Donald Trump attacks the media, or he calls uh, the investigations witch hunts, you have uh, the kind of air cover that no president has ever enjoyed um, in, in, in our history. Maybe other countries have experienced something like this, but, but this is new for us.
1: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Our featured guests are conservative radio host Charles Sykes, Joshua Johnson of WAMU's 1A, NPR's Melissa Block, and James Fallows of The Atlantic. If you like today's show, check out our podcast takeover series from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Journalist Michelle Norris interviews New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Comedian Pete Dominic sits down with Trayvon Free, who writes for the show Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. And USA Today's Susan Page talks politics with the producer of the Broadway hits Hamilton and Rent, Jeffrey Seller. Find these special episodes on iTunes. Now, back to the show. Here's Joshua Johnson.
2: Let's get to our next question. Yes, ma'am, hi.
5: Hi, my name's Leila, I'm from DC, and and kind of as a follow-up to that question, Um, I I see a lot of hope too in my generation in changing kind of the way that uh, we solve problems and collaborate but at the same time we're running up against a lot of institutional failures and um, in terms of having really productive conversations, how responsible is it for what is the responsibility of the media and social media to kind of provide a a platform for everybody to say whatever they want whenever they want or uh, to help people have kind of uh, these productive conversations that hopefully could lead to, to problem solving and not problem creating.
2: It sounds like, I just want to clarify your question, it sounds like you're asking what's the role of media, you said media organizations and social media. I mean both,
5: yeah, both, both the, the media I think there's kind of a if it bleeds it leads mentality and it's, it's a little sexier to uh, tell the story of, of kind of failures. But how can we tell the story of successes, and how can we leverage both media and social media to kind of go against what, what we're seeing now, which is kind of a negative use of uh, you know, some of these platforms to reframe things as more of a positive So um, So how,
2: how can we leverage view? media to reframe these conversations more positively? Yeah.
4: I mean, I think what you're asking is sort of how do you pierce the bubble in a way? I mean, how do you get through to people who don't want to listen? And I wish I had a great answer to that. Um, I'm thinking, I'm still going back to my my trip around the country, and we were at, a of all things, a 4-H soup supper in Independence, Kansas. You cannot imagine a more all-American venue. And all we were doing was asking kids about what's in your crock pot Um, and, you know, got some great answers. But we overheard one of the kids say to the kids standing next to him, um, don't talk to them. You can't trust the media, not even Fox News. And this is a 12-year-old kid. Um, Where does that come from? A
2: 12-year-old kid who said that?
4: Who said that. Not to us, but we overheard him say it to the kids standing next to him.
2: Who taught him that?
4: Well, there you go. (laughs) I think, I mean, the flip side of that is, and and to toot NPR's horn here a little bit, um, that we have seen huge audience growth, as a lot of news organizations have in the last year or so, and I think that there is an appetite for people to seek out information that feels as unbiased as might be possible in this current climate. Um, I don't think it's a lost cause, and I think there's a huge appetite for that. I really do think that's a space that needs more voices to fill it. Um, can, I just so,
2: ask, can I just ask a quick question, uh, audience participation here, and then we'll, we'll keep going. I, I think, James, you wanted to chime in, so yeah. I'll, I'll let you chime in in one second. When we talk about the media, who are we referring to? Give me some suggestions. Who do you think we're talking about? When you think of the media, who do you think of? The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, say again? Everything. Everything. The Washington Post. NPR, Vice, Vice? who else? Politico, Politico, Slate. Slate, Say again. PBS. (laughs) Okay. Local media, media, like local TV newspapers. How many of you, by and large, by show of hands, would say that, by and large, of the organizations we just named? you trust them to help lead our civic dialogue, that you do trust them to help lead that civic dialogue, by and large. (laughs) And how many don't? Okay, all right. Vast majority of the hands went up for those who do trust those media
3: organizations to lead that civic dialogue. James, go ahead. I was going to have a parallel point, uh, not about the media, but about generations, about younger generations. One of the things that is really striking tra- traveling around the country is, on the one hand, the long history of the United States is of smaller areas depopulating. If you take either the states of Texas or South Dakota, over the last hundred years, most cities, most counties in all, both of those states have lost population every single census because there's been a, a collection in, in larger and medium-sized cities. but. Across the country, you see case after case, for example, in Allentown, PA, with a devastated downtown of companies deciding they want to move their headquarters back into downtown because young people working for them want to live downtown. People in Fresno, California, also a terrible downtown. There's a young tech community there trying to rebuild it. I could go on for hours about Erie, Pennsylvania, and the, the young people, people there. But just that uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, people moving in from smaller parts of the prairies thinking that Sioux Falls is big enough to do what they want, but not not uh, threatening. So I think it's been really interesting to see people in their 20s and early 30s thinking that they can remake some of these places that have been troubled.
0: Could, I, could I just follow up on mm-hmm. that? Yes, and then so we get, get to I, our next I, question. The, the, the question about the media is immensely important, mm-hmm. and, and I, don't, I don't want to give it short shrift, but there's another element to this that I think we have to be honest uh, about, which is that you know, we, we've had you know, issues of credibility, we've had fake news before, we've had politicians who lie before. Um, we've, we've never actually though seen an electorate that's been willing to accept this. Um, there's a professor from Yale who just came up with an article I can't get out of my head. He says, we are not in a constitutional crisis in America right now, we're experiencing constitutional rot and by that he means that we have, that a lot of the norms and the standards and the traditions that we've relied upon in this country um, are apparently paper thin. And that a lot of Americans do not have an appreciation for American history. They do not understand the Constitution. They do not understand why we have these norms. And at some point, yes, the media has a responsibility, but so does the public. We, we really desperately need to have a public that, that actually cares about whether things are true or not. Um, that, that actually is is civically has civic knowledge. The educational system in this country needs to go through a period of introspection. You know, do Americans know civics? Do they know our history? Do they know why this matters? Do they teach history? I mean, what, what is the price that we're paying for having an electorate that is historically and civically illiterate? Now, of course, nobody in politics wants to say that. I need you people not to be so dumb. Um, <laughs> but. But, but there is a point at which a lot of the assumptions that we've made, you know, that if, if a person behaved in this way, this is the way the American public would react, well, that's been broken. And so that's a media problem, but I think it's also a cultural and a civic problem as
2: well. We've got about 15 more minutes. Let's see if we can get in as many more questions as we can. Yes, ma'am.
4: Hi, I'm Hillary from Miami, Florida. Um, the gentleman just uh, said something about Fox News and whether you're Democrat or Republican, the breaking news today is the false news of CNN. Jeff Zucker and uh, the the reporters that they are just going for ratings, and um, they are in the collusion. And so why don't we touch base on the fact that CNN is just going for ratings, and uh, they're not really, you know, they're chasing something.
2: Can I push back on your comment just a little bit? Yes. I believe everybody's going for ratings, even NPR. We want to be your number one source for news, too. I do, though, I think, take her point in terms of ratings being the end instead of a means and what that does to the civic dialogue, that it's basically about greed rather than about democracy or our civic sphere. But for that matter, I'm not sure what we can do about that other than to change the channel.
3: Right, and so so there there's a, an immediate CNN episode where three of their reporters and editors were fired, you know, because of of, of a, of a of a, uh, of a false and apparently false story. And so I think I think that I have many complaints about CNN and many things I admire, but I I respect the fact they actually, you know, if this was false, then then they they took consequences for it. So that is something I, I or we, flawed. Yeah, or,
4: so right. we can go so far as it was false it was uh, flawed. So.
3: It's without getting in, into, into the details, of it. I think a problem of cable news in general over the last 20 years has been a spectacle-mindedness, knowing that people will watch, if, if they're not showing something spectacular at that moment, whether it's a terrorist attack or a hurricane or the latest scandal or whatever, people are gonna go someplace else. And so that means that it's as if Everything in our public life was, was, is with the volume turned up to max all the time. And so it's permanent emergency, which makes people feel worse about life, about politics, about everything else.
0: Charles? Well, okay, I don't want to, I'm not carrying water for CNN, because I actually work for MSNBC. So, um, um, and this was a disastrous mistake by CNN. I do think they took responsibility mm-hmm. for it, but it has been weaponized by, um, by, Trump supporters. This is by the you know my number one piece of advice to the media is you know get it right because your credibility is really at stake. But also, what what then are the consequences for f- fake news or falsehoods? We have a president who lies on a regular basis, and many of the people who are upset with CNN are willing to accept his lies. We need to have a standard that we apply to everyone. So is CNN fired to the people who got it wrong? Right? Thank you. No. What, what do we do about the other people who get it wrong?
2: Let's keep going with questions. We'll, and Let's try to keep the questions and answers as brief as possible, because we're low on time. Yes, sir. I would just like to propose a friendly amendment to Mr. Fallow's otherwise excellent analysis. <laughs> um, I, I think that it's, it's not necessarily helpful to describe it as a kind of a religious pluralism that's <laughs> taking place in Washington. All over this country, we have religious groups who are working together, particularly at the local level, to affect positive change. And they they actually are furnishing us a model of how people with divergent worldviews can come together and make a difference. Uh, To that point, I, I would recommend part of what Senator Chris Coons from Delaware said during the opening ceremonies along that line about how he found bipartisanship with members who were far on the opposite side of the spectrum because they were able to kind of have a meeting of the minds or the spirits, as it were, and that humanized them to one
3: another. James? Uh, yes, yeah, so briefly, I, I agree. And, and around the country, we've found faith-based organizations to be of profound importance in settling refugees and in ameliorating disagreements and problems. So I agree with that. I was trying to suggest something where, where for purely doctrinal unprovable sectarian reasons you hated somebody or agreed with somebody. So I guess tribalism would be the other way to describe this.
2: I want, before we get to the next question I have to ask was because we're beating up on Fox News a lot. Yeah, they deserve it. Fox, (laughs) (laughs) how do we deal with the people who like Fox News? We can't, we can't just cut that many millions of Americans off from from civic life. Those are American people who see something of them reflected in Fox. How do we welcome those people back into the larger civic dialogue without demonizing them for being fans of Fox News?
3: I have immediate family members who are, who's, um, yeah, yeah. whose view of the world is entirely defined by, by Fox News. And, and so we try our best to say, well, you know, here's the actual evidence on this other front. And so I think it is part of the long Sisyphus-type uh, task of trying to uh, just add uh, facts to their, their view. And Melissa? I mean,
4: don't you do it by the way we do what we do, which yeah. is by keeping an open mind and listening. Um, I mean, I think listening is an extremely undervalued resource in this country. And um, the more we try, chances are, the more we'll succeed. OK, I, can I,
0: I have a slightly different perspective on sure. this, even though I want to beat up on Fox. Un- understand why that, that phenomenon occurred. And it was conservatives who felt ignored and insulted and looked down upon for a very long time. And as one of the token conservatives here, I have to say that you know that you have to understand that you know this didn't just happen overnight. You know, before last spring, I don't think that um, I don't think that I'd ever been interviewed by a publication in which I was not described in some cases, kind of you know, um, an extremist and a moron and everything. And suddenly became a deep thinker um, when I came out and criticized Donald Trump. Suddenly, I experienced the strange new respect. But trust me, I know what it is like to deal with the media as a conservative. So it was kind of a pullback to a safe space for, for them. Yes.
1: Hi, my name is Maureen, I'm from Aspen. And my question is, we all are in different silos, so it's hard to have a conversation with anybody who is on the other side because your information is coming from different places. Is there a, pl- a platform that could be a bipartisan fact checker, almost what NPR did during the election? so that you could actually go someplace and say, no, that isn't correct and here's the platform that is saying that from both sides.
4: I think that the flaw in that or the trouble, the hurdle to overcome is that one person's truth which we may feel is objective and provable to someone else may not seem that way. And to get beyond that is a huge challenge. Um, and it gets back to everything we've been saying about fake news and what people's core beliefs
3: are. James? Uh, again, on the hurdles here, the editor of Time, Nancy Gibbs, was saying yesterday at the the tenth session that she had a dinner with Donald Trump in which the question of the crowd size for the inauguration was the central topic of discussion. She said, look, here's the National Park Service photos. Only so many <laughs> people can fit into this space, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And, and that didn't convince him, and, and so I think there are that we could have fact-checking organizations. I don't know if it would solve the sort of willingness to disbelieve.
0: What you're describing is important. It would be wonderful to have. But basically, in our alternative reality silos, we have to throw the flag on our own side. It's going to have to be conservatives who, who uh, throw the flag on some of the stuff, which is, again, one of the ways that I think that uh, you know, Fox News has failed so miserably. You know, One of my great uh, regrets is that we did not push back much harder on the hoaxes like, for example, the Obama birtherisms, things like that. If you look the other way, if you tolerate it, then, then I think you reap what you sow. But we live in a world now where the left is going to have to take care of your nut jobs. We're going to have to take care of our nut jobs. Um, we're going to have to correct our, our, our faults. And you know to re- establish that level of credibility, but there's not a lot of incentive. There's not a business model for calling calling your own team out. I would also just suggest
2: before we go to the next question, I I have found it's a lot easier to show people new information after you've listened to them yeah. and heard them out and understood mm-hmm. what's at stake for them. Uh, I said this during the session on Tuesday, but John Maxwell once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's exactly. Right. Because then the thesis of the conversation goes from you're wrong to being I hear you. Oprah Winfrey on her very last show, she said every single guest she ever had for 25 years all basically wanted validation. They wanted to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does anything I say mean anything to you? I think a lot of the people that I've encountered who feel ignored feel like they don't matter, feel like they are invalid, literally humanly invalid. And I find that validation opens tremendous doors and then gives you permission to teach, to correct, to challenge, to be incisive. But until people know you care, why would you listen to somebody who doesn't care about you? Let's keep going with questions. Yes, ma'am.
1: I'm curious if your
4: conversations revealed anything about this disconnect between people's economic
1: self-interest and the way they cast their vote. I'm from Kentucky, which had the largest Medicaid expansion in the country, a half a million
4: people added overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump, and I'm just
1: wondering if you're getting any insights into that. Was is, are people defiant about it, and is there any kind of uh-oh factor happening now?
2: Let's see if we can get one quick response to that, and then we'll have to wrap up. I
4: mean, I think you know there are so many different ways to slice that. I mean, I certainly can think of examples. Kansas, for example, which lost its hospital in Independence. Medicaid expansion likely could have helped to save it. And there are very conservative members of the Kansas legislature, including the, the, from that district, who now think, well, that was dumb. That was a really bad mistake. I mean, here are the net effects of that on the ground. Um, that said, there there are plenty of people who don't necessarily see the connection between policy writ large on the national level and how it will affect them. Although, with the health care overhaul now, we're seeing those numbers pretty clearly, I think, where people are realizing there's, what it means yeah. for them and how it intersects with the national there, There's
0: another dynamic which is, in a local Wisconsin a politician that actually taught me this. He said, realize the number of people who live, live off of subsist on, subsist on $38,000 a year. And they work hard. And what bothers them the most is their brother-in-law and their sister-in-law, who's on food stamps or on SSI, who they feel is, um, is, is, is loafing, mooching off. And the resentment of that is so intense. Um, the resentment of, and this is part of the, the appeal of the attacks on illegal immigration. So you would think these are these are lower working class people and they should be you know, supporting policies that would advance them, but that politics of resentment and the fact that they live it. We, it, it's all intellectual for us, in, but if you live in a world where you are working and you are playing by the rules and you see people in your community who you think are getting these benefits that they don't deserve, that frankly accounts for a lot of those votes and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Before we wrap
2: up, I just want to say I appreciate all the questions and comments that were shared. Before we go, give us something that we can all take back to our communities, organizations, businesses, various spheres of influence for when we are in the heat of these dialogues. It can be very easy to intellectualize over your lovely lunches here at the Hotel Jerome. But (laughs) when you're in the middle of it, all of that goes away. If we forget everything else, we're in the heat of dealing with these conversations briefly, what's the one thing you want people to most keep close to them when they're trying
3: to find a way through these tough conversations? James? When uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote his famous portrait of America two centuries ago, he emphasized the fact that it was a nation of communities and civic affiliation and people who could deal with each other and work things out. And that is still the country that we have seen, that if people can separate themselves from the increasingly tribalized and, and, and bitter divisions at the national level. We are still that people. And so realizing that, that it is possible to solve these things locally and hoping that example can spread upward. Melissa?
4: I would say figure out the places where you have common ground. And that means expanding your own bubbles, um, stretching outside your own spheres and looking for places and voices that you might not ordinarily be exposed to or take into account in your daily life. Um, I get back to the notion that I said at the beginning. We, we contain multitudes. I mean, it's very easy to put people into boxes. And as you probe a little deeper, you realize that there are a lot more dimensions to most people.
0: Charlie? What they said. There you they go. <laughs> no, no. That were better, we're better and we're bigger than our politics. Yeah. We invite you
2: to please keep the conversation going at Aspen Ideas. You'll find more sessions online at AspenIdeas.org, with Charlie Sykes, Melissa Block, and James Fallows. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day at the Aspen Ideas Festival.
1: Melissa Block is a special correspondent and guest host for NPR's All Things Considered. Joshua Johnson hosts 1A, the show that succeeded The Diane Rehm Show. Charles Sykes is a commentator on MSNBC and hosted a conservative talk show in Milwaukee for more than two decades. James Fallows writes for The Atlantic. He and his wife Deb recently completed a book about civic resilience across the country. It's based on interviews they did for a series in The Atlantic called American Futures. Today's conversation was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.